Reading from Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Welcome to church. It's good to be uh, with you again. A lot of you are asking me how I like uh, retirement. Um, it, it's kind of good in some ways, but I'm not really retired, so it's, it's still pretty much kind of the same old. But uh, it's, it's always good to be back with you. Um, this is the second installment of a monthly series that we're going to be do, I'll be doing throughout 2018. Um, we've titled it Perspicacity, which is a totally unfamiliar term to, to most of us. Um, I remember the first time I did it, uh, Zach came and he said, man, that was a winner. He said, I had to look that up online. But it, it, I, I think it really kind of underscores everything that we're going to be trying to do um, when we do this once a month. The definition itself, it's a noun that basically means the ability to understand somebody something, somebody or something very quickly and accurately. And so in that sense, it's a lot like Malcolm Gladwell's uh, podcast, uh, Revisionist History, where he says, okay, we're gonna look at, look at something that's been overlooked, something that's been misunderstood, and what we're gonna try to do is just do a drive-by kind of shooting at it. That's probably not really appropriate this week, but... Um, if, you, if your feelings got hurt with that, it's going to be bad today. Um, what I mean by that is that the second installment is, is dealing with the issue of sexual harassment. I really don't know that there is a different, uh, a, a more volatile issue, and yet it's not even close to being settled in our society. And it, it's, it's just like a huge wound that just opened up and it doesn't look like we're going to get over it very soon. And so we're going to push into this issue, and I want to highly encourage any of you with questions or input to email me personally at james at l2today.com. <laughs> love to get your email and love to get that feedback this next week. Okay. Now I got that out of the way. Um, I think most of us know there, there was a coalescing of a lot of different social political issues in 2017 that kind of started to bring this forward. But again, as most of you know, a lot of the main media outlets were, they were really timid in, in starting to release some of the information. They, and it had a lot to do with the powerful positions that some of the people that have been accused, uh, that they were in. And people have held this issue kind of at bay for decades, actually. And, and there were some searing allegations that came out. And we kind of saw a tipping point with Harvey Weinstein, with Roy Moore. Matt Lauer's thing was a whole different issue. And there was a host of other people in powerful positions that it actually took a while for people to kind of muster the courage to start to talk about it. But hands down, what ripped the whole, the whole landscape open, basically, was you know, the hashtag MeToo movement on social media. 
because that gave an easy voice for men and women from virtually every facet of our culture to be able to say, okay, here's what happened to me. And so we've seen remarkable courage by people that have come forward over the last couple of months. And, and yet, you still have a sense that there are still other shoes to be dropping. I mean, even as recently as the last couple of weeks or months, um, uh, Larry Na Nassar, the U.S. Olympics gymnastic doctor, his trial was, it kind of gives you a, a, a feel for the issue because in his trial where he was convicted of, of uh, molesting female athletes over the course of quite some time, they, 156 accusers came. They allowed them to come into the courtroom and give gut-wrenching explanations of what he had done. 156 of them. And so that tells you that the scope and the depth of this, we still haven't gotten there. And so it makes kind of taking this issue up a little tentative. Um, obviously, the scope of something like this, we can't entirely get our head around or arms around in just one sitting. But I, I think there's some things that we can do that can actually begin to lay a foundation for our, our thinking. Um, just last week, the Washington Post um, issued a, a story that just kind of showed the depth which corporate America is being rocked by this. You know, and in the story, it just basically said a deluge of sexual harassment allegations and reports of workplace uh, misconduct has struck, and they use these three words, has struck fear and panic into the hearts of human resources department, departments across the country. Okay? And this is what the Washington Post article said said those three words, and that's, whose song was that? It took us years to figure out what those three words is in that song. Whose song was that? I, I can't hear anybody. So anyway, this is what they said. It said those three words, CEB human uh, resource consultant Brian Crop used to describe what he's seeing and hearing from clients as they navigate a flood of complaints and a growing sense of unease that their company could be the next in the headlines. They're worried these meteorites could be coming, he said, but they have no idea how to protect their house. That kind of just puts you in a place. I mean, what's happening in HR is far from settled because they don't, they don't know how to respond. The, the, the article goes in and he says, the playbook on sexual harassment is probably 30 years old. And the way they responded to it is that they would listen to the allegation and they would go through some sort of an investigation, but they said that so much is going on with the Me Too movement that they can't do that. And so now they're having to respond within like hours of allegations. And they know they're leaving the company liable if they overreact and respond to a false allegation, but they can't wait. And so they're put in this kind of tension that no one can quite resolve. And so my question is, we get, just kind of start pushing into this topic. How are we supposed to think about an issue that's, that has been that destructive and that pervasive in our society for literally the de decades? How do we even start to get our head around it? How do we discuss it amongst our coworkers and friends and even with our families? What are actions that we should take and what are actions that we should absolutely refrain from? 
Those are all good questions. They're certainly not easily answered. But I, I, I really do think that we have to start kind of at a bare minimum. We have to set a low bar that we can kind of move forward. And I think there's two questions that we have to agree on because if we don't agree on these two questions, there's really no need for a solution. And no solution will ever be found. But I think most of us can agree on these two, two questions. Number one, have women been and are they still being sexually harassed? Absolutely yes. After all the evidence that's come forward, we're beginning to see that the entertainment industry, politics, and the workplace across the country has, has irrepressible evidence in it now that this stuff is going on. Second question, should women be protected from sexual harassment? Again, the answer is emphatically yes. Now, as simple as those questions seem, that's about as far as the agreement goes. Past those basic questions, there is literally a sea of suggestions and even demands now that, that have to do with what it's going to take to create an effective and sustainable solution to this issue. Okay? So, as obvious as that seems, I think it's still going to be worth your while to consider some, some issues to such a systemic problem with the scope of it that we still don't really understand. We can lay that foundation. Now, to do that, I want you to consider two things. Identifying the real problem and posing and answering the right questions. I think when we're committed to those two things, a lot of the smoke in the room begins to dissipate. Now, as we push into this first thing, identifying the real problem, I want to kind of open it up as broad as the issue is. This probably doesn't make a lot of sense to you, but I think the issue underneath this issue, is, it, it augments to a lot of other issues. I think this is just a symptom of the problem. And what the root of the problem really is, has, it, it has a lot of other manifestations in our society, okay? So as repulsive, as challenging, and as painful as it might be, I think we must all have the courage to acknowledge the obvious fact that sexual harassment is a symptom. It's only a symptom. It's not obviously an insignificant symptom, but the problem goes way deeper. There's something that's much bigger, there's something that's much more dangerous that's lurking in this issue. And if all you're thinking about is sexual harassment, you can't see this. Okay, so I want to take just a few moments to kind of separate what, in counseling, what they call the presentation problem from the real problem. Now, if, if one of you were to have, say, a brain tumor, a painful one, and you were to go to a poor physician that started to just merely treat the pain and started to give you some medication to just ease the pain of the symptom without continuing to diagnose the problem, it's going to make everything worse. This is the same way. It's exactly the same way. That that process not only masks the real problem, it oftentimes causes it to develop into a, a far more serious condition than it was when you first started treating it. Now, I'm going to say this as clear as I can. The real problem of sexual harassment and workplace misconduct is the very same problem that's at the root of all discrimination. It's fundamentally a sense that when a person, when a man or a woman comes to a point that they're able to say, I'm better than you, I'm superior to you, 
I'm the one who deserves special treatment or equitable outcomes. The moment that you make that conclusion, it's only a matter of time before there's going to be an abuse of power and position. It's coming. It's just a matter of time. Now, the reason I say that this is all linked together in that sexual harassment is just one blossom on this organism is simply based upon the fact that we, we have a very difficult time. I think our country is much better than it was when I was a child. When I was a child, it was very, very common to listen to racial slurs and jokes, and, and they're still there, but they're not as pervasive as they were when I was a child. So I think there's some progress being made, but there's some terrible moves that are being made as well. Now, that brings us to this text that you heard in the very beginning, taken from Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 and 28. Now, I, I, I honestly don't believe that there is a clearer statement and a more concise statement in all of the Bible about equity, especially among the genders, as these two verses taken from, ironically, the very first chapter in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Now, in verse 27, it basically explains that God created man in his own image. Now, there's some, a lot of significance in that is that it's basically saying that every human being since that created fiat has carried some image of God within herself, within himself, every single one. And so as image bearers, there's something communicated about God through us as a medium into the world. Okay, but it doesn't stop there. The, the clause that says in the image of God, he created him, Male and female, he created them. Now, that is really significant because it, what that's saying is that the full image-bearing capacity or vehicle that human beings have can't be limited to one gender or the other. In other words, there's, there's aspects of the character of God that are communicated into the world through masculinity that aren't through femininity. But it's just as true of femininity. There's aspects of the character of God that are communicated into the world through femininity that aren't through masculinity. Now, that in and of itself, as a bare minimum, is basically telling us that there is, there's a necessity of mutual respect and dignity among the genders. Now, the next verse, verse 28, pushes it a little bit further because it explains a bestowment of blessing from God to both of them when he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the, uh, uh, of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So to both of them, the man and the woman, he bestows and grants the supreme position in the creation to both of them. It's not like he gave it to the man and he said, wow, lucky her because she gets to tag along. Now, he granted it to both of them. He said, here's the creation that I put you in. And I've given you the supreme position in it. And I want you to subdue it. Now, that in and of itself is problematic, and I'm not going to unpack it today. Because there was no sin in the world at the time. And so our conclusions have to simply be that there was some aspect of our creativity, our ingenuity, our, our industry that caused us to be able to figure out how our work in the world would cause it to honor God more than if we weren't in it, if it was just in its natural state. 
And so all of you Patagonia nuts that think that we need to just take everything backwards, you're missing the trajectory of it. Now, are there places for, for restoration and redemption in, in some of the mistakes that we made? Absolutely, yes. But there was a trajectory to the whole thing in the beginning where God basically intended us to go into the world and cause it to be better, cause it to honor him more because we were in it than when we weren't. Now, the implications of this are fairly serious. They should be somewhat obvious because it's distinguishing the fact that, that there's not an insignificance in masculinity or femininity. It's also causing us to say, well, what are the distinctions between the gifts and the talents? Because they're obviously not the same, right? We can start with a physical assessment and we don't look the same. And there's psychological, there's intellectual and spiritual differences between the sexes that were intended to manifest themselves in, in, into the world for good, not for bad. Now, I, there's, a, there's a burden of proof, I think, in this for all of us as Christians, because when, when we talk like that, it seems like we're being Pollyannish. It's like, well, if it's so simple to understand, why has, have issues like this eluded us for so long? How is it possible that, that that the coordination of the genders and the intention of it has blown apart. It's eluded us. All societies and all cultures have basically the same problem that we do. It's way worse in Africa and the countries I've worked in than it is here. But it's still a problem here. I'm not denying that. Now, two chapters later, we get some explanation of what happened. Two chapters later is when the man and the woman said, screw this. We can be our own God. We can actually do this our way. And the genders have been fighting each other ever since. And men have been winning. Now, that again begs this question that should be in the minds of many of you. What do we do? If that explains how it was broken, and it's been broken ever since, if you read the rest of that, third chapter there's this first evidence of the gospel that's given that actually says god graciously says i'm not going to allow it to stay like this for very long i am going to redeem this sooner or later now by understanding just that and i'm not trying to take you through a deep theological concept it just it it, it creates a timeline in which the trajectory is going back to what god intended that's where we're going and it enables us to position ourselves some someplace along that timeline, which brings us back to where we are now. Now, I suppose that there's a bit of a silver lining in this because we're able to be able to say, well, in this historical moment, not the one we were living in 50 years ago, not the, certainly the one we were living in 300 years ago, but in this moment, there's this irrepressible evidence. There's something coming out that's forcing all of us to determine what we believe about this. So this is the moment, apparently, where God in this trajectory said, enough, it needs to be straightened out. So what do we do? Now, there's a few ideas that I'm going to give you here in a few moments, but one of the, I think one of the questions is, is a little bit what I've already posed, is that if the answer to this is simply that there, there could be respect between the sexes, 
If it's that simple, it seems like this problem should, should have gone away. I think there's three things that are virtually blinding us in the United States. It's different from culture to culture. It, the situation in North Kenya with the Samburu and the Turkana and the Rendili tribes, it's, it's an entirely different situation over there than it is here. But I can speak with some authority on what's going on here and why we can't see it as clearly as we should be. I think there's three factors that have aggravated the problem and they've significantly hindered us from finding a solution. The first one is that we live in a highly sexualized, sexualized culture. Now, hold your horses just a moment because America is not the most sexually deviant culture that has ever been. I know some of you are convinced of that. I hear it all the time, but it's not true. Even a, a very slight examination of the Greek and the uh, uh, Roman cultures, it proves to you that their political and social systems and even their religious practices were far more sexual than ours are. Now, having said that, the, the rise of the internet and the development of technology that has made it more accessible to us, that is different. And because it, we're so... We're, we're so uh, when it, anything first happens in your life, that is like the most intense impact it's going to have on you. But it then just starts to habituate. It starts to become the new normal. And because we've lived inundated by this, this bombardment of sexual impulse for so long, we're kind of numb. You couple that with all this access, and now you've got a recipe for disaster. It's just like it's the norm. Okay, so that's one thing that's kind of aggravated the situation and hindered our ability to find a solution. We live in a highly sexualized culture. The second is we are continually influenced by ideologies, particularly two, secular, secularism and materialism. Now, these two influences, I think, are some of the most significant in our culture. And what's interesting is that they're very different, but they have kind of a common effect on us. It actually begins to separate us from seeing ourselves as whole. In other words, when we begin to focus on our experience, when we begin to focus on what we possess and things like that, it begins to diminish how, how we value issues like character, integrity, virtue. And because we diminish those, we don't have the ammunition to fight for them anymore. And so when we get into situations where something challenges the very nature of our character, it's not alarming to us. And so the bombardment of those two philosophies in general causes us to disregard important aspects that we're willing to kind of just give away. We're willing to sacrifice even the most sacred aspects of our, ourselves on the altars of sex, money, and power. Okay? Third influence, we live in a culture of victimhood. Now listen carefully to this. this those of you that are younger, this is a bigger issue than those of you that are older. Um, just last week, um, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas said he's become exhausted with how everyone seems to consider themselves a victim. He said, I quote, at some point, we're going to be fatigued with everybody being the victim. Now, he wasn't insinuating that there aren't true victims. In this issue of sexual harassment, there most certainly are victims as well as there's perpetrators. 
However, we live in a culture where people have, they yearn to be victimized. Now, you might say to yourself, well, why is that such a big deal? Is the moment take, if you're, if you're struggling with anxiety, people want to be told that it's a disease. Because if it's a disease, they can't help themselves. You can't blame a diabetic because he has to take insulin. And when we're victimized, it begins to dissipate any motivation that we have to take responsibility and change it. And it is pervasive in our culture, this idea of victimhood. And I, I believe it's undermining the very foundation of responsibility that would cause us to say, okay, you're right, that person shouldn't have done it, but what am I going to do now? Now, I think there's one aspect of our culture where it can't come in there very often in the sense when, if you were to get in a terrible traffic accident and lose the use of your legs, you can blame the person all you want, but sooner or later, you have to determine whether you're going to do the hard work of trying to walk again or how to build a life when you can't. Now, as long as you think you're a victim, you're going to feel sorry for yourself. And that's what Clarence Thomas was getting at. So three things, three things that are really kind of blinding our eyes out of this uh, to see this. You know, highly accessible and sexualized culture, exposure to ideologies that diminish our own sense of our humanity, and a growing culture of victimhood are preventing us from seeing that the root of the problem is really inside of us. It's the way we think about one another. And it doesn't matter whether it's white on black or black on white. It doesn't matter whether it's men to, to women, nation to nation. It doesn't matter. It's ex this root of the problem is the same thing. Now, this brings us to the second point that I want you to consider, and we're going to move through this fairly quickly. It's posing the right questions, answering the right questions. Now, I'm going to push you through something. Now, remember, the email address for all of these questions is james at l2today.com. This is the part that's going to step on some toes, I promise. If it doesn't, I haven't done a very good job. Now, if you haven't discovered and heard or read something about Jordan Peterson, you need to wake up. Okay? Jordan Peterson is one... Um, I, I read a story last week that said he's the most infamous intellectual in the world today. And he's, he's that good. He's not belligerent. He can talk about issues in a way that actually diffuses a lot of the hostility even on college campuses. Now, recently, Jordan, professor, he's, uh, Jordan Peterson, he's a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. He, he did an interview with Vice News in his home, actually, in which uh, he expressed his concern that we are not even posing the right question to, to the issue when it comes to the issue of sex, sexual harassment. We're just, those questions are not even being answered or question being posed or answered for that matter. And during the interview, he, he asked a question that seemed kind of out of place, even for me. When I'm watching, there, there's links in the sermon notes, by the way, to all, all these articles and stuff that I'm, I'm referring to. Um, but he asked this question in, in, the, in the midst of the interview, and he said, can men and women work together? 
And probably like me, you're going to respond. The, the interviewer responded exactly the way I did. It, it was like, it, that was an absurd question. He said, of course they can. He said, I've been working with women for years. And he said, I'm not so sure. He, he's, he's got a British accent, so I can't sound as good as he can. It's, it's kind of French or something like whatever they speak in Toronto. But anyway, um, <laughs> it's still better than mine. Um, but he asked, he said, are you so sure? He said, we certainly haven't been able to figure it out over the last 50 years. And he said, we're no clear, nowhere even near resolving this issue now, so what makes you so sure? That takes you back. Now, as it goes on, he gives the example of some of the changes that NBC News incorporated after they dismissed Matt Lauer. And they actually came out and they started with the they instituted a regulation for hugging. And it says employees wishing to hug one another, quote, have to do a quick hug and then an immediate release and step away to avoid body contact. Now, is that good or bad? Yeah, give me an answer. Okay, see, there's a lot of people said, well, it's a small step. It's a small step. It's, it, it's a step in the right direction. At least women don't have to worry about a bunch of guys creeping up on them and hugging them or rubbing their shoulders or all the other nonsensical stuff that might take place. And he uses that as very interesting. His point with that example was in the statement. If employers have to resort to regulating hugging between workers, then the fundamental question of whether or not men and women can work together should be asked. Because that is what is implied by taking the step of regulating hugging. You see his logic? He's saying NBC is assuming that they can work together. So they're willing to take steps to this is basically a motion to sanitize all sexuality from the workplace. Now, here's my question, and this is what Peterson raises. If we're going to look at all the issues that have to be sanitized, such as hugging, should women wear makeup? Remember, james at l2today.com. <laughs> See, what he's getting at, he said, should we regulate high heels or other articles of clothing that women use to actually make themselves more sexually attractive? He said the very reason that women wear red, red lipstick is because during a sexual encounter, your lips tend to be more red. He said, doesn't that have to be considered in the process of this? Now, what is he getting at? Is he, is he actually getting at that NBC should write a new policy that says, Sorry, ladies, no more blow-drying your hair. No more wearing high heels, no more wearing lipstick or makeup at all. That's not what he's saying. What he's forcing you to do by asking what initially appears as a preposterous question is saying, can we actually govern people externally? Can we actually do that? Or in a free, virtuous society, do we, do we actually need to be more concerned whether they can do it internally? Because where are you going to draw the line? Where can it be drawn? Now, a free and virtuous society has to be built on those very things. Freedom, 
and virtue. It has to be. Therefore, our dependence on external regulations to govern us so that we mindlessly can just stumble through life rather than doing the hard and the challenging work of determining what we truly believe and understanding the consequences of those beliefs, it will never be able to overcome the problems of sexual harassment because it's too mutable. The environment's changed too quickly, but people don't. To be practical, I think, just to kind of tail this off real quickly and land it, to be practical, I think in where our cultural, or this historical moment that we're in, I, I think there's going to have to be some semblance of the use of external control or internal control. We have to understand both of them, though. Because the things that we talk about and the things that we regulate, those things are going to change us. And they're moving our society one way or the other. And we need to be careful about where we're headed because of issues like this. Now, Joe Quinn, he wrote an amazing assessment of this interview between Peterson and Weiss. And he concludes that Peterson's main objective is to demonstrate that ideas and ideologies can and will lead a society for better or for worse. And oftentimes, what appears to be innocuous steps that, like policy, uh, a policy regulating hugging, that seem to make sense, they're very quickly applied in ways that nobody intended. And it just gets out of control until suddenly somebody says, how did we get to the point that we can't even decide the kind of bread we buy? See, that's what Peterson is really getting at. And that's why he's finally challenging people to start thinking again. It seems like we're dealing with topical symptoms, and really there's something lurking beneath it that's much worse than we imagine. Now, I, I think it goes without saying that no one can be absolutely sure about the outworking of a particular ideology, but only a fool would disregard the lessons of history, and particularly those of the 20th century, when in a very short period of time, major, major ideologies in Russia, in Germany, in China, they swept human societies down the road to unbelievably massive death and suffering. Now, Quinn closes his assessment with, of the interview with this warning, and I had to ask myself, why does this seem so extreme? I, I know some of you are probably already thinking, why would you tie regulation about hugging to actually mass murder? And this is what Quinn writes, and I think it's worth your consideration, then I'll be done. He said, the massive death and suffering in other societies didn't just come out of nowhere. Each step was preceded by a smaller step that made tragedy just a tad more possible than it was before. Often those steps took the form of new, vaguely defined crimes that seemed to make sense at the time and addressed a real issue, but which were then applied in fashions that even their supporters didn't see coming. That is what is happening today. 
And that is what Peterson is bringing attention to. For example, no one disagrees that rape is abhorrent, but rape has been steadily stripped of its semantic content to the point that it can now apply to consensual sex that the woman decides she didn't want at any time after the act, whether the next day or weeks or months later. The same goes for harassment, which can now be applied to any behavior in which the victim finds offensive, including any form of unwanted sexual attention. That can be a well-intentioned hug, an awkwardly phrased request for a date, or a look that lingers for a second too long. That's powerful. And again, I repeat what I said. The only reason it's so startling to us, we really do not grasp the gravity of the ideologies we subscribe to. We really don't understand the consequences of the things that we claim to believe to be true. And I think it's time we started paying attention. As Christians, I would encourage those of you that do believe the Bible, figure out how it recommends us to think. The very first chapter has a really significant answer to something that we're not going to figure out for some time to come. All right, let me take a couple questions and we'll be done. If there's no questions today, there had to be technological failure. How do we speak truth against the groupthink that seems to seek vengeance instead of equitable justice in, lights, in light of facts without seeming to lack compassion? I don't know, that's a very complex question. Um, Let me speak from a Christian vantage point. Um, there's only 4% of Christians today that hold a biblical worldview. Our churches don't teach that way. We don't read our Bibles that way. And that basically means that if you lined 100 people, Christians, in the front of this building, and you asked them a question about marriage, about parenting, 96 out of 100 of them are going to give you an answer that just comes from the world. And only four of them are going to give you an answer that comes from Scripture. Now, I think that that's a big problem because our society doesn't know the difference between those four and the other 96. And so 96% of the time, we as Christians are feeding the culture the same stuff that they're hearing. And there's no distinction. And so I think if you're going to try to answer anyone, you better be equipped with what God actually says to think about marriage. What he says to think about how you manage your money. Before you try to engage anyone, you better have some idea that you can help them. You certainly don't. You go even to very, very common uh, examples where, you know, on airlines, when they say these masks drop down, put one over your, one over your own face before you help anyone else. You don't try something and it's not working and then put that on somebody else's face. Now, some of you might think that's funny, but I really don't intend it to be funny. I deal oftentimes with, with non-Christians. And they don't mind being called non-Christians, but if you dare infer that they're unbelievers, you're going to have a fight on your hands. Something as innocuous as that. 
and this is how I've heard it. This is how I, why I became so sensitized to that, is that you refer to them as, a, as an unbeliever, and it, it's the response and the pushback kind of sounds like this, is that how dare you infer that I don't believe anything because I don't believe what you believe. That's arrogant, and it is. The problem is, is that we read it in Scripture, and the context doesn't fit sitting at Starbucks with a friend that happens to be a non-Christian or an atheist. And so know what you're going to say, and approach the issues with a little gentleness. In Proverbs 15 and verse 2, it says that the tongue of the wise commends knowledge. That means that you actually make it attractive. You cause people to want to know and to believe what you've come to know and to believe. But 96 out of 100 of us don't know that, and we really engage pretty bombastically. And the reason is, is because we don't know. All we know is what other people don't. Most of us, when, I, when, I, when people come in and they say they don't believe Christianity, I, I'll ask them, can you tell me, what, tell me what you think it is? Never once in 25 years have I had some, one of them, not even one of them, thousands of people I've talked to, not once have I had them give me a compelling explanation of Christianity. And I'll always tell them, if that's what it was, I wouldn't believe it either, which really confuses them. It's like, that's not it. So just learning how what we believe. Be diligent enough to figure out what you believe about some of these things. Two verses out of Genesis should pretty much straighten you up. Women are just as important and necessary as men. They haven't been treated that way, but that doesn't change those realities that were instituted the first day we walked the earth. And so there's something here. Learning what we believe and how to engage is far more than getting too buried into some of the semantics and some of the issues, you know, uh, like an ornament, like, like, a, like apples of gold and settings of silver is a wise reprover to a listening ear, is a word spoken in its proper season. There's times to talk and times to be quiet. We're, we get far too concerned about the actual data that we need than just the manner in which we gauge other human beings. Okay, I hope that was helpful. Next question. What is so enticing about the victim mentality that is prevalent in our society? I, I don't know. There could be a thousand answers to that, but what I can tell you is that it's easy. It's easy. Because if you've been diagnosed as a victim or you've allowed groupthink to put you in a victim mindset, it's not your problem. It's not your fault. But take, for instance, a common issue. Say if depression isn't a chemical imbalance in your brain, then why are you depressed? See, it's so much easier to think you have a disease in your brain than a sickness in your thinking, because then you're responsible. That's why victimhood is so popular. All right, last question, I'll be done. Wow, I can't believe there's only two. James at l2today.com. Happy to answer all your questions. All right, let's pray and, uh, and I'll be done. Father, I would ask that, uh, that even in my delivery of this and desire not to let it just get somber, um, people wouldn't conclude that it, it, this isn't a serious issue to me or it's not a legitimate issue in the in the lives of many people, probably even many in this room. It is. 
But there comes a time where we have to be willing to take a step back and to gain perspective. And I think when we do, especially looking at an issue like this, we can very see how it triangulates to other issues that we're dealing with all the time. There are people of color. There are black people and brown people and, and, and white people in this room that have been severely mistreated by other people because there was a sense of superiority of whites to black, whites to Hispanic. And there comes a time where we have to be able to confess and repent that we actually see that we're more important. We think where there needs to be an equitable outcome, we're the one that deserves it. When somebody should be selected for the job, we think that we're, we're the ones that should get it. But in reality, we need to be able to take a step back and, and even pose the question, what would it look like if I believed that every other human being was more important than me? Ironically, just exactly what Paul said we should be doing in Philippians 2. Let the interest of others be more important than your own. <laughs> I tend to think that things would change rather quickly around here. But we struggle with that. I pray that you would give us sincerity of faith. You would help us to have the courage to make changes where they need to be made. And there's a lot that need to be made. Help us to think deeply today. As we take communion, I pray that you would help us to be able to see it as a demonstration of our affiliation with Christianity. These are mere symbols of broken body and blood that was spilled for us. But when we partake of them, not only do we anticipate you attending it, we're conveying to other people where we stand, that Jesus really is the hope of not only these days, but all the days to come. And so we thank you for this time. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening.